Save the date for the 12th of September. Join our webinar on digital transformation in manufacturing. We are exploring how IoT, AI and smart factories are reshaping our sector. Hear from industry leaders like Airbus, Rolls-Royce and Heriot Watt University. This is a must attend for professionals and decision makers in manufacturing. So register now at resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. That's resources.red-fern.co.uk slash webinar. The link is also in the description. I had a fascinating conversation this week with Dr. Nigel Davies, taking a deep dive into sustainability and green issues for manufacturing. We talked all about the new government targets and why they're more achievable than many people think. We also tried to simplify the jargon, so hopefully everyone can really get to grips with this big, hugely important and at times very complex issue. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. From Redfern Media, this is Remake Manufacturing. My guest this week is Nigel Davies, Director of Technical and Sustainability at Muntons, a UK-based malting company and the largest producer of malted ingredients in the world. He's also Managing Director of Malt Doctor, specialising in sustainability strategy and carbon footprinting for the malting and brewing industries. Nigel is passionate about demonstrating strong leadership in practical sustainability and has gained a reputation for demystifying the debate on this topic. He's also the winner of the Manufacturer Top 100 Award for Sustainability in Manufacturing 2016. So, Nigel, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. It's a great build-up. I hope I live up to it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. So, so, let's get straight into it. You're Director of Technical and Sustainability at Muntons. What exactly are you responsible for there? I think most people would know it as the QSHE function, so that would be quality, safety, health and environment. But more generally, uh, perhaps as my title would suggest, I'm responsible for implementing the sustainability direction for the company. Right, okay. And the British government has a target to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 78% before 2035. To you, does that sound like a lot? It sounds like a lot to me. How achievable is that goal and what can manufacturing business do to contribute? You know what, I think uh, when I talk to people around this, a lot of people are quite frightened of that target. They think it's, uh, it's too much, too soon. But I think if you look at a lot of the commentators around this area, they're telling us that we're already 20 years too late, which is a little bit doom and gloom, as I think we've seen this, this week in the, uh, the, the report that's come out. Very frightening. Yeah, I'm not in the doom and gloom um, uh, sort of merchanting uh, activities there because I don't think it's very helpful. And I think, uh, in fact, I've just finished a report this week uh, on the performance of cereals up to 2030. And I started with that. Is it all doom and gloom? Actually, I don't think it is. But I do think that puts people off. And I think the other aspect is that people think that to get there, they are going to have to wait for new technology. And I really don't think that's the case. And I mean, where you're working, Muntins, you're well ahead of the curve. So do you want to tell us what sustainability initiatives you've been pioneering there? Yeah, I guess uh, probably the first time we used the word sustainability was back in 2006. So it's quite a while back now. Um, I was invited to give a talk on carbon footprinting in the malting and brewing industry. Uh, was a colleague of mine was doing the, the brewing part and uh, nobody was talking about it at the time. It was the November. I didn't know anything about calculating carbon footprint. And in the March following, we were both introduced as experts, which was scary. Mm. Um, now, Muntins had had a, a focus for many years before that on maybe 10 to 15 years, I guess, before that, uh, a focus on the natural environment, not using too much water, not using too much energy. 
So in that sort of six months, I developed a carbon calculator from scratch. Uh, it was very well received at the conference. Uh, so much so, I was invited to give it again in Germany. So about six months after that, and then prior to that meeting, I then found as I was about to go on that the organisers had been told by a large section of the supply chain, the delegates were going to get up and boycott and walk out. And I thought, my goodness, wow. is it me? Is it? And it wasn't me, thankfully. It was the subject. Um, so I just said to them, look, you know, I'm six months ahead of you. I, you can't be a leader unless people follow. If you would like to have my spreadsheets, you can have them. Nobody asked at the time. And I managed to defuse that fear at the time, I think really by saying, look, you know, we're all in this together. I'm trying to help. And probably over that next four years, I came up against quite a few people who were a bit frightened that maybe I'd pointed the finger at them because of the way I'd calculated the, the carbon footprint. Right. So what I needed to do with them was to say, look, we're just looking for the hotspots and I need to know who I'm going to work with. And that's really what we've done since about 2007 or 8. We've taken the lead in highlighting not who's to blame, because it's not about that, but highlighting what action is possible to measure carbon footprint and then to look at the existing technology and see what we can do now, use that to drive what I think is a very bold program of uh, greenhouse gas reductions. Mm, and that reluctance that you're talking about with these companies, that hostility at times, I mean, that is part of the, the problem we face at the moment, isn't it? Yes, I think people are quite suspicious in many ways. Um, they will, they'll worry over much, perhaps, about the calculator that they're using to, to measure carbon. I tell you what's moved on, really, probably in the last 20 years, is that uh, then people were sort of about, you know, carbon what? They didn't know what the carbon footprint was. And it was very much about climate and global warming. I found that wasn't a very helpful debate because people, that people took sort of political positions. So we came away from that and said, look, irrespective of your beliefs on that, if you're going to uh, look at energy efficiency, water efficiency and greenhouse gas reductions, that will be beneficial to your business anyway. Mm -hmm. And in doing those things, you will benefit the planet. So whether you believe in it or not, it doesn't actually matter. Uh, and that was helpful, I think, to, to, to make that shift. So can you tell us about some of the targets that, that you set for the company there? Yes, I'm, I'm very keen to, to set a target or was keen to set a target really that uh, didn't just look at efficiency, but looked at something which was globally relevant. So, uh, And that shifted really in those 20 years. So if you go back then, the targets were being set were energy use per tonne. The UK government's target was energy use per tonne. It was to save uh, initially 7, then 12, then 18% of energy which was fine, but we were doing that quite easily by investing in technology that was available at the time. The, the difficulty was, I think, that that didn't match the targets we needed to hit to make sure that we weren't impacting the planet. So I started to look around about 2010, thought, what, what's out there that, that is a, a target? And there was an organization called the Science-Based Targets Organization, backed by a number of very big institutions, people like World Wildlife Fund, World Resources Institute, they, they'd got together and uh, they'd calculated for each sector how much we would all need to save. Now, when I looked at ours, it was 80%, eight zero, And I thought, well, that's absolutely impossible. Surely, how can we save 80%? They required a 15-year window. You had to make your savings in a 15-year window. So I thought, oh, well, I'll contact them. I'll just see, is that really correct? I felt they were much better than I'd heard because they said, look, you've done an awful lot before 2010. We cannot ignore that. 
So therefore, your target for your on-site operations is going to be a 45% reduction by 2025. Now, bear in mind that 18 was what we'd saved before. That still looked quite tough. Uh, I thought it was quite a big mountain to climb. Mm. I was told at the time it would take us uh, a year just to get the target ratified. But I think because of the history that we'd got with all the data and the openness that we'd created, they were quite happy to, to take that. Um, so we started to look around at uh, some big targets and we said, well, OK, what if we switch our fuels? So forget about being efficient. What if we switch our fuels? And um, believe it or not, some of the best contacts I got were through LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> I quite like that rather than people emailing me or knocking on the door as people were allowed to do back then. <laughs> um, I, I found that biomass uh, could save 90 percent of the emissions. And I thought, well, that's very attractive because uh, we should be able to uh, get some biomass boilers in surely the issue we then faced was that the government's incentive schemes around that were a little uncertain shall we say at the time um, and i'm not being politically i'm not knocking them uh, they'd probably got very good reasons because i think they perhaps had some organizations that maybe were trying to to get something uh, in place which perhaps wasn't as sustainable you know we've heard of the big power stations importing wood chip from the other side of the world well that's clearly not sustainable is it mm. so we said, okay, well, if wood chip is this wonderful thing that's got 90% less emissions, we want it then to come within uh, 50 miles of our plant. We want to make sure that it's not wood that's got another productive use. It has to be truly waste. Uh, and we then said, well, that, that therefore is classified as renewable because it normally would just sit on the forest floor, emit its CO2, okay, over maybe sort of 50, 100 years. We're going to emit the same CO2 when we burn it, so it's a renewable product. Um, so that was great. We thought we can do that with our operations. And then we said, well, okay, but we've got this other huge part of our embedded carbon, which is the growing of malting barley. Uh, and the farmers didn't know what that meant. We helped them understand with the carbon calculator, it was about the fertilizer they used. Then the fertilizer manufacturers got a little bit uh, upset, thought we were saying it was their fault. And, you know, another few years went past. And actually, we'd heard them that they were going to take 90% of the emissions out in part of their process, which would mean that there was a 40% reduction in the fertilizers that they produced. So we eventually got to see them and we said, look, we're not your enemy. We're actually going to be your best buddy here. Uh, it ended up in a joint press release because uh, they then said, well, we're not going to charge anymore for this, what they call abated nitrogen fertilizer. We said, no, but we will specify that our growers must use your product because it won't cost them anything, but it will take 40% out of the carbon footprint. And I think that's a really good model of how you can start with antagonism, but by communicating and understanding and being very clear, you can end up being best friends with the people that were your enemies in, in the carbon uh, sort of battle. Yeah, that sounds amazing. So figuring out how to sort of switch their, their minds around and, and have the right attitude towards this problem, it seems that is half the battle. But I mean, there's other barriers um, to the UK hitting its uh, 2035 target. What, uh, what other problems do you see facing us? What do we need to, to solve now? I think this is one of the things that has changed least in the past 20 years, that people were arguing about whose model you should use to calculate a carbon footprint then, and they're still arguing now. So when I talk about this at conferences, I say, look, okay, I can use whichever model uh, you like. When I've looked at them, they're only about 6% different in the total carbon footprint. I said, so flip the figure. That means I'm 94% certain. Now, hands up anyone out there who is 94% certain of every decision you make at work. I think you'd like to be, 
<laughs> the point is, therefore, <laughs> I'm quite happy with that. I'm 94% certain. It doesn't matter whose model I use. Um, so that, that's quite a barrier, but I think it's an easy one to overcome. And I think the other one I, I alluded to it earlier is that people have this belief that we do need to wait for new technology to solve the problems. Um, now, that might be true about fuels switching to hydrogen, for example. Uh, I hope it comes a lot quicker than uh, maybe it's, it's looking like it will come. But then again, if you look at electricity generation, they are saying that by 2035, our electricity network is going to be uh, carbon neutral. And it's a true neutral uh, here. It, it could even be carbon zero, because if they switch from coal and other sources to hydrogen, uh, then, you know, every time we plug in, even though it's a big plug at a manufacturing site, big three phase, uh, we're going to be using zero carbon electricity. And so I think this is, again, one of those barriers. It's, it's not all down to one person. You're going to be helped by the electricity company. The The gas providers are saying they're going to be able to produce gas 64% uh, less carbon intense. Uh, case studies like we're showing are saying that with the science-based target, we can probably get down to in excess of 60 65%. I suspect it's going to be 75% decarbonized, and that's going to be this year. So the government target is there. In fact, we're, we're sort of looking way past that. We're actually not just looking to get into the government target. We're seeing how far uh, we can go forward. And if you think of the switch that's out there, you know, nuclear is a really politically charged um, power source, isn't it? Because people say, what do you do with the waste afterwards? Well, the options that we're looking at at the moment, there isn't a problem. There's no waste at all effectively from it. So I think it's a lot more encouraging. And I like to talk to people about these things to say, don't put all your eggs in one basket, look for a suite of alternatives to choose from, but choose something. There's plenty you can choose now. Don't wait for somebody else to make the choices for you. Mm, absolutely. And whilst there's argument over what tools we're going to use to calculate uh, impact, there's also confusion about sustainability terms, carbon zero, carbon neutral. What, what do those terms mean exactly to, to you? What's your definition? Yeah, you know, I think that's so important that actually our, our sustainability report that's literally just published yesterday at, at Muntins, uh, I've chosen this year to put in a definition of these because people don't get it. So uh, normally the carbon footprint is divided up into three parts. Uh, I'll give you an example. Scope one is the gas that you'd use on site, so it's direct operations. Scope two would be the electricity uh, that you buy in. It's also steam and heat. Um, so they're things that you have an invoice for. They're quite easy to measure. The, the thing that people worry about is scope three, which is everything like your raw materials that come into you. So you're not in control of those. It takes a bit of effort to work out what the carbon footprint is. Uh, and then there's all the things that happen to your product when they leave the factory. So that's what makes up the carbon footprint. And uh, then we've got these other terms, which I guess people don't quite understand. So carbon neutral effectively means that whatever you're emitting, you're looking for something somewhere else on the planet which balances that. Now, you may choose to own that, or you may choose to buy credits off that. So that would sort of neutralize. It's a, it's a balancing act. Carbon zero, that's, I still think that's probably going to be impossible for most people. In other words, your operations emit absolutely nothing. Mm. So your supply chain and you emit nothing. Well, that would be perfect, but I think that's too much. But I do still see people setting that as a target in their strategy. I'm thinking, really? I don't really think you mean that. I think you mean climate uh, climate neutral or carbon neutral. And the other term is that uh, is now talking, people talk about being carbon negative, believe it or not. I mean, you know, malting barley, carbon negative soon. Mm. Uh, I, 
perhaps because people don't understand that people are talking about it being climate positive. I do like that phrase. It simply means that your operations uh, absorb more CO2 than they emit. So it's a genuine, it's a genuine saving. Uh, and I noticed that uh, last year there was a set of principles called the Oxford Principles came out, which basically defined that. They said, look, the way you save your carbon is to look at your own operations first, look at offsetting last. And when you're looking at offsetting, in other words, going to buy some, some good credits that somebody else has done, make sure that those credits are not just buying a forest that's been in existence for 50 years. They use this term called additionality. So look at a project which is taking more CO2 out now. Um, so it's, it's a sort of a, a premium offsetting, I suppose. It doesn't necessarily mean a premium price. Now, I think that's really useful. So put your own house in order first. And then when you need to balance the tiny amount that's left at the end, a few thousand tons of carbon, go and find yourself a project maybe which is struggling to get off the ground and your financial input would get it over the ground and take some more CO2 out of the atmosphere. I think that's a really good thing for, for, uh, for companies to do, not just piggybacking on the, the fact that somebody else has done something good, which you didn't really have a part of. Mm. And I mean, sustainability is also uh, something that can lead to new business. Uh, I think you told me before that 35% of your new business at Muntons came from... Um, your pioneering sort of efforts in that area. Um, can you explain a little bit more about how that works and, and where the value is? I think uh, our customers, like like anybody's customers, will still buy firstly on quality and price. Uh, most of the surveys suggest that sustainability is about number seven on the list, but at least it's on the list. So our customers have said to us, look, you know, when we've uh, whittled down this, the potential people we could buy malt from, if we end up with the last two or three, who are we going to choose? Well, we you know, they, they've told us that they've chosen Muntons because we had a credible sustainability agenda. We had case studies to show that we were making real savings. Now, why is that important to them? Because if they're going to then say we've chosen the supplier and our supplier is sustainable, then they put it in their, uh, their report. If there was any chance that there, there was any, anything wrong with that data or somebody had fiddled the data, it would affect their brand image. So it's very important to have a, a partner uh, in sustainability who they can trust and they have told us that we've we've actually had increased orders from some customers because they said we trust your data so much that we can see it will reduce our carbon footprint therefore we should be buying more of your products and less of your competitors products which is great of course isn't it I mean that's great if people are choosing based on on that criteria then I think that's something to really um be be happy about. Um, you're also managing director at Malt Doctor. Can you tell us a bit about that? Who your typical clients are? Uh, what problems you solve for them? Yes, yeah, so I, I set it up uh, last year, uh, just at the start of COVID, which might seem a crazy crazy time to to set it up. But you know, we'd heard a lot about the green recovery, hadn't we? Um, and I guess it was a little quiet until uh, till sort of October time. But it's really taken off uh, from about October time. So so what am I doing? I'm it's an expert witness consultancy I've had for thirty years that I've now added the sustainability to because hopefully, as you you've heard on this, I'm pretty passionate about it. Bit difficult to shut me up when I start talking about sustainability. Um, I've got clients ranging from major international brewers, uh, distillers, and maltsters, right down to the the, the craft uh, maltsters and brewers. Uh, and they they need different things. Some of them just want uh, to me to help them understand what all these terms are. That some of which we've talked about in this uh, uh, in this podcast. Uh, 
some also have already had experts in there and maybe they're thinking, I wonder if this is too good to be true. And maybe we, we'd like, my, you know, they ask for my experience to say, do you think this is real? Is it, is it really going to make a saving? Would you choose them? And so they, they're asking me as a sort of a, uh, you know, honest broker of some of the sustainability options. Sometimes I get brought in as well because the people, uh, maybe there's a disconnect between the board and uh, operational levels because the board maybe sees, sees this as <laughs> tree hugging or whatever, uh, particularly if they've got an older board, perhaps who aren't switched on. Um, maybe they bring, I mean, I, I'm I'm 62, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm told I'm not supposed to be into these things. It's supposed to be all the youngsters that are into it. So I was delighted the <laughs> other day to be introduced at a conference as a silver bullet. <laughs> I think they were referring to my uh, hair or lack, lack of it. But in other words, um, they, they were saying, look, they just, you know, it's not about age, really. It's about people having passion and being able to talk to a board about sustainability, help them to see that it's about risk management. It's about, uh, it's about the bottom line. So talking to them about this so-called triple bottom line, that you get benefits for people, for the profit and for the planet. And profit is not a dirty word. You have to invest, yes, to, to be more sustainable. And you might have to take a longer view of the payback, maybe six years, not three. Um, and and they, they understand that sort of terminology. Whereas the, the people who are going to then go and generate the carbon footprint are saying, how on earth are we going to do this? How much resource do we need? How complicated is it? And then I'm able to say, look, I think you're measuring your energy use already, aren't you? Yes. You know what fuel it is? Yes. You get an invoice? Yes. Okay. Well, you're two thirds of the way there. I will take your existing spreadsheets and show you how to convert that. I'll show you where the conversion factors are. And then I'll show you some of the technologies that you might want to consider to reduce that carbon footprint. And you, you can almost see the scales come off their eyes as they think, ah, oh, mm. this is not what we thought it was going to be. Um, now, of course, there are challenges. You know, it's not, I, I wouldn't want to paint it entirely as being rosy because uh, you do need, you know, you'll need extra resource in terms of investment in the business, I think, as well. Um, and also, I think, the ability to, to train people, give people the time to, to learn about these things. But yeah, it, I'm finding it really exciting. You know, I didn't know it was going to take off as much as, as it has, uh, but I think it is this this focus. We've got COP26. We've got the UK having an official target now to reduce carbon, uh, and I think people have enjoyed seeing the impact on the environment during COVID. It was something good to see in a, in a terrible time. So they are wanting to fast track in that area. So someone, particularly, I think with a food and beverage background here is uh, someone they're thankfully knocking on the door of. So so despite all the doom and gloom we mentioned at the top of the show, the things can be seen to be moving in the right direction in some ways. Yes, I think so. I, I, you know, it is, it's very difficult. I wouldn't deny, deny that fact. It, it seems that we probably have already overshot that two degree C rise, but I think we're in a better position now to to claw that back, it, we may not be there within the 20-year window, but I do think that there are more opportunities now to claw that back. Uh, so rather than saying we're, we're sort of we're going to have a miserable second half of the century, there's more chance of recovering during that second half of the century. But we do have to get our skates on. Well, that is very reassuring to hear. Um, you, you recently released your 2021 sustainability report. Do you want to tell us a bit about the purpose of that and who's it for exactly? Yes, I, I'm trying to make it. Uh, I'm trying to make it less scary for people. I think uh, so. I want them to understand the terms, what carbon saving is about. I want them to see our success stories. 
Uh, I also want them to see how we've, we've sort of raised our eyes a little bit. So I think it's more stimulating to say that, you know, we're now looking at a global target like the Science-Based Target Initiative, which so many people still haven't heard about. And then also to say, you know, it's not just about carbon and water. It is about the quality of lives as, and it's about supply chain cooperation, which is exactly what the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals uh, are about. Uh, and it's also when you've done all of these things, it's very easy to sign up to other things like the Race to Zero. Uh, but I'm very keen as well to say in there that the, you should not be signing up to the Race to Zero just because you want to put your hand up to say it's a good thing. You need to make sure you've underpinned that with real things that you've done at your company. Share the successes. Talk about where things have gone wrong as well and what you've done to to, uh, to remedy them or you've parked them and moved on. So that's what the sustainability has got in there. It's, uh, it's really hopefully something that somebody can pick up. And I, I know a couple of people have already said to me, you know, I think I actually get it now. Mm-hmm. Well, that can only be a good thing. Was there anything that surprised you in the report? I think the surprise probably was it was in people's reaction, how positive it was. So I released it within the company uh, and immediately a number of people came back and said, look, this is really good. Uh, there's, you know, the sales guy saying, well, this is going to be fantastic for customers because we're always being asked these questions and now we've got it uh, you know, in, in, a, in a nice, easy, accessible format. Um, and then perhaps people who I might not have expected to be you know, as, as interested in the subject have said, you know, we really enjoyed that. We really enjoyed it. And, you know, we, we passed it on to people at home and I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, you don't, you don't normally expect that, you know, when you, when you release a report at work, you don't normally expect uh, so many people to come back and tell you that they've liked it. So it's good. Yeah, that seems like a very positive place to leave the discussion. Um, If we can end the show the same way we do each week by me asking you uh, if you could tell our audience one invention that if it was never manufactured, your life would would be unbearable. What can't you live without? You know, I really enjoyed thinking about this. Um, I even got them debating this at work. Uh, They're a bit surprised at my choice that they said, oh, you're going to say the mobile phone because you're always on it. It's not. For me, I'm thinking, you know, what would I really, really miss? I'd miss the piano. Mm. If somebody hadn't invented the piano, it's, it's maybe not manufactured, but I suppose it is in a way. Uh, if I couldn't sit down there and just chill out and take myself to another place, um, and I think the act of playing is great, I would really miss that. That's an old school uh, piece of uh, invention, but uh, absolutely vital for all of us. I mean, I think we can all get behind you for a, a sing-along, uh, <laughs> no matter no matter how the environment's doing. So all it leaves me to do is say thanks to today's guest, Nigel Davies. Thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Subscribe to this podcast in all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and Google Music. Thanks for listening to this edition of Remake Manufacturing. I'm your host, Stuart Black. See you next time. Thank you.